following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 7, 13 through 20. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Um, You know, with Lent, I know a lot of people giving up Lent. Social media stuff is one of the things. Dude, you guys should just give up social media forever. But, But one of the gems about social media is to see some of these viral videos that circulate, and some of them are just straight up funny, like pure comedy. And one of my favorite ones uh, of old, this is kind of dated, but, but maybe you've seen this, this guy who, who takes this mask, like a silicone mask, super realistic. Like you look at it and like, you know, he puts it on, the eyelids move, the lips move, right? It, it just so looks like a real person. So this guy, he, he takes this super realistic looking mask, he puts it on, dresses up sort of in costume. I've, I've seen like this done with an old guy, so he's got the big old bushy white eye, eyebrows and the stubble, right, all the wrinkles. Um, and so he, he puts his mask on, gets dressed up, wears like old dude clothes, and he basically just like goes about his business in, in his house. Um, you know, in the kitchen or sitting and reading a book, and his wife has no idea what's going on. She, like, walks by, and she has to do a double take, like, as she goes through the doorpost, like, who is this strange man that's just sitting in my home, right? Have, have you seen this? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, come on, guys. Well, you'll have to wait in 40 days, then you can go watch it. Anyway, super funny. This guy pranks his wife. The whole reaction, right, she's so shocked. Like, she's, first she's freaked out, like, there's a stranger in my home. And then the reveal, you know, it's super funny. She, you know, they all laugh, laugh about it. And then it's up on viral videos, and you, you know, you check it out. Well, Jesus says that there are well-disguised people walking around in the church. They're disguised not to stand out, not, not like this guy who's like this weirdo in, a, in the home, but they're disguised in a way to blend in, to, to like look the part. Now this isn't some harmless prank, right? Something that we just put, put the video camera in and we watch it and we get a good chuckle out of it. Jesus says that this is actually a big deal, which is why he carries a tone, tone of urgency and caution here in these 
few passages, or these few verses here, 15 through 20, that we're going to be looking at today. He says, Beware. Hey, be on guard. Have caution here. He's telling us the stakes are high. Now, he ultimately wants to tell us, he calls them wolves in sheepskin. And what he's trying to communicate to us today is how to spot them, right? How to spot these false prophets, these false teachers, these people who are here blending in so that we can avoid becoming like them. Now, if you've been with us for the past several months, we've been going through chapters five, six, and seven through the Gospel of Matthew. This is where Jesus presents the Sermon on the Mount. He's standing up on a hillside, and he's pulled some of his disciples into him, and he's telling them about the kingdom of heaven. So at the beginning of of the gospel, we've got John the Baptist who says, hey, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here now, and now Jesus is unpacking what it means to be a kingdom person, how to get into the kingdom of heaven, and what it looks like now to live into the kingdom of heaven right here and right now, Not not just when we die someday, but right here and right now, the kingdom of heaven is unfolding before us. Now, as Jesus sits up on this hillside, there's something very interesting here. He's standing up, and this would be very reminiscent of of the Greco-Roman philosophers who would take their their disciples, their their protégés up to a hillside to give some sort of revelation about this is the way to live the good life. Well, Jesus is basically doing that. He's standing at a crossroads of Jewish wisdom literature, which if you go through the, the, the front part of your Bible, there's all kinds of beautiful wisdom literature, the book of Job, the book of uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, great pieces of literature that the Jewish people had basically staked their lives on. Like this is the way to live a God-oriented life. This is the way to live the good life. But on the other side, you have this Greco-Roman uh, era of philosophy where they're talking about how to live this good life. And Jesus is standing here at the intersection of those two worlds, radically different from one another, yet concerned with the same thing of how do we live the good life? How do we live a satisfying life that leads to human flourishing? And as Jesus is talking about this, as he's he's presenting this vision of the kingdom of heaven, people are enthralled with what Jesus has to say. Like, this, this is the tendency that we see with Jesus throughout the Gospels, that Jesus starts talking and people just, like, lose track of time. They, they forget that they're hungry, right? There's multiple occasions where Jesus is like, yeah, there's like four or 5,000 people that we gotta feed. It's because they get wrapped up in the teaching of Jesus, just enthralled with what Jesus has to say. And as he comes here towards the end of chapter seven, he's making some concluding statements. He's presenting this vision of the kingdom of heaven, and now he's saying, you have a decision to make. Will you live into it, or will you ignore it? Now, this is what we saw last week when we started talking about the two paths, right? The two gates, the the, the narrow gate and the wide gate. The, The narrow gate leads to life. It's hard, but it leads to life. The wide gate is easy but leads to destruction. Jesus said, hey, you, you choose my, my teachings, you base your life on my word, it's a narrow gate, but it's gonna open up to life. Now on the other hand, if you choose to go about your way, doing your own thing, ignore Jesus' words, you're going through the wide gate, but it's gonna lead to destruction. And he's telling us here as we come to verses 15 through 20 that there are people who are preaching the way of the broad path. 
There are people who are trumpeting. Here's the way you ought to go. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't be fooled by them. Beware, he says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus is telling his disciples, keep your eyes open. Keep your ears peeled because there are going to be people who come in behind me that say, here is the way you should go, which is actually going to lead you away from me. He's saying there's going to be false teachers and false prophets that are going to try to distract you, to pull you away from the good life, the narrow gate. Now, this isn't a one-off saying that Jesus has. Like he doesn't, this isn't just the only time that we see this warning through Scripture over and over and over again, littered through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We hear these warnings of being aware of the false teachers. Jesus, in fact, repeats it often. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Right? Watch out for the false teachers. Especially the weirdos who say that they know when Jesus is going to come after Jesus says that nobody knows when Jesus is going to come back. Right? Those people you should definitely be aware of. Now the question is why? Why does Jesus say, watch out for the false prophets? Watch out for the false teachers? Now some people say, well, you know, I don't... I just kind of like do my own thing. I, I don't really have a false, te- you know, I don't, I don't really, there's nobody's doctrines that I subscribe to. I just kind of do my own thing. Well, let's, here's the reality, that everyone is being discipled by someone. Now, discipleship, like we talk, we talk about Jesus and discipleship, we're talking about following the Jesus, uh, where's this at, practicing the way of Jesus, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, following his footsteps, imitating Jesus. But Jesus isn't the only one who makes disciples. The culture makes disciples, right? Fox News makes disciples. CNN makes disciples. It's not a matter of if you're being discipled, but what you're being discipled by. And if you don't think you're being discipled, you're very blind to the reality that you're being discipled by something. Jesus is saying that everybody has faith assumptions. Everybody has some set of ideologies about what they think life is about and what the, the next life, eternal life is about, how to get from one to the next. Everybody has these faith assumptions, even atheists who say, I don't have any assumptions. That itself is an assumption. There are always faith assumptions, and whatever your faith assumptions are, they're going to form and shape your life. And so Jesus says, hey, watch out who you're giving your ear to. Pay attention. Pay attention to who you're inclined to listen to. Now, if, if we commit ourselves to the way of discipleship of Jesus, not just being saved by Jesus. Hugh Halter was here uh, this week for Porterbrook, and he talked about, he made this really interesting distinction about being first decision and second decision people. The first decision is, oh yeah, I've decided that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I leave it at that. Like, okay, he saved me from my sin, and I'm, I've punched my ticket to heaven, and that's it. That, that's a first decision Christian. But Jesus is really interested in the second decision Christian. The person who said, yeah, Jesus is my savior, but he's also my Lord. He's my teacher. He's the one that I wanna emulate and follow all the days of my life. Now, when we actually follow Jesus, when we give ourselves to the way of being discipled by Jesus, by his word, by his church, it's awesome. 
Like it's hard. He, he says it already. It's, it's a hard path, but there's life here. It's life-giving, not life-reducing. There's something sweet about it. It opens up to us the good life, like this, this dream that we have about what life is really supposed to be like, and the church is a taste of what the kingdom of heaven is gonna be like. It gives us a little glimpse into what the good life is. But many Christians have this tendency for Jesus to just be one voice among many. Like, yeah, I, I appreciate what Jesus has to say, but I also draw from this and this and this. And so here you have a chorus of conflicting voices that are not harmonious in their message or their tone. Now the danger of this is if you give your ear to the wrong person, they're going to put you on the broad path which leads to futility. Right, it'll, it'll make you li live a subhuman life now, but it also carries eternal effects into the new heavens, new earth, right? It's a bleak future for you if you're staking your life on somebody else's teaching besides Jesus. And so Jesus says, if you can guard your ears, you can guard your heart, then you can guard your life, and it'll be good. But he wants to expose to us the fact that there are teachers, false teachers, false prophets who are at work trying to steal us away. There are two types, basically. Two types of false teachers to watch for. There are the religious type and the non-religious type. Now, this is the genius of the enemy. He doesn't care which kind of false teacher leads you astray, it all works. Right? It's like C.S. Lewis and the Screwtap Letters. I'm pretty sure I'm like, I don't know what week, in, what week we're in this year, but I'm pretty sure I'm 100% on C.S. Lewis quotes so far. <laughs> but in the, the book, The Screwtap Letters, it's, this, it's a sort of a satirical book of, of an elder demon discipling a younger demon who's trying to lead this Christian astray. And he tells him, hey, listen, it doesn't matter, if, it doesn't matter how you get him off the path. Both false religion and non-religion accomplish the same goal. This is the genius of the enemy. Now, Satan uses religious counterfeits, people who, who um, present this almost right kind of gospel that, that's kinda true, but very wrong in some of the most critical ways. Right, And we get things like the prosperity gospel, that God just wants your health, wealth, and, and, and blessing forever, that there's never gonna be any hardship that you face, which is diametrically opposed to the way of Jesus. He says, actually, to follow me means you've gotta go kill yourself. Not literally, but you're gonna die to yourself. You're gonna die to your desires, and, and in doing so, you're gonna find true life. We get prosperity gospel, we get this this weird hybrid, which is just garbage, of Christianity meets nationalism. Terrible. Like you saw this with the, with the whole, uh, the, the Capitol building riot thing that happened a, a couple months ago. That was disgusting. False gospel. Or the gospel of, of emotionalism, where people just sort of emotionally manipulate you to have some sort of uh, emotional response and kind of you know, do a dance or whatever. Like these are all false gospels. They've got a little bit of truth in them, but not the substance. 
And then there are non-religious approaches to false teaching, things that are, are, are taught and widely accepted ideologies among the culture, things like consumerism, individualism, self-help, universalism, these secular ideologies that point us down the broad path and make us miss the narrow gate, right? That's what these false preachers are doing. Now, the, the non-religious false teachers operate outside of the church, right? They're not in pulpits. They're not at, at conference circuits, speakers. They're, they're not doing that sort of thing. They're, they're not trumpeting the name of Jesus. They very much have a secular communicate. They've got a secular message. However, because they're so widespread and widely embraced by the culture at large, there are many Christians who, who come to adopt them and, and sort of get influenced by these false teachers from the secular realm. We don't call them prophets, right? They're, they're, they're not false teachers in the same way that, you know, prosperity gospel is a false teacher, but, but they are like modern philosophers, and they're setting up an ideology, a way of being in the world that is contrasted from Jesus. And what they're doing is making the claims of how to live the good life. Now, I'm gonna list out some people here that are doing this. These are voices in the secular world that their influence is, is trickling down into the church. And if we're not aware of it, it's gonna have a disastrous effect. Guys like Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, Oprah, Ellen DeGeneres, Simon Sinek, Ben Shapiro, Christopher Hitchens, Brene Brown, Rachel Hollis, David Goggins, Tony Robbins, Nick Offerman. Now, don't get me wrong. I like a lot of these people. I like listening to them. I think they're fascinating. I think they're entertaining. I think many of them can be very insightful. So I'm not canceling them. I'm not demonizing them. But there is something about the way they present this philosophy that could very easily lead people down the broad path instead of the narrow path. Now, I think there's a lot to, be, to commend some of these people for. I think there is. There's a lot that is commendable about them. Even, I would say that my favorite ones on this list tend to borrow biblical principles and sort of hijack them. Like, so, so like they say something that, oh, that's really insightful, and actually you can trace it all the way back to the Bible and say, hey, this is, this is the origin of this idea. They, they share ideas about human flourishing, what it's like to live the good life, but, but when you really boil it down, their message is how to get the kingdom without the king. That's what secularism is. It's how to get the kingdom without submitting yourself to the Lord and King Jesus. Now for them, you know, in the secular, secular realm, Jesus is unnecessary. He, he's a good teacher. They can applaud him and say he's got some great ideas, but Jesus is ultimately unnecessary. And because they have this, and that's the way that they're leading their followers, it's down the broad path of destruction they miss the narrow gate. Now, if you're living on a healthy diet of what these people teach, and, and that by no means was an exhaustive list of them, this will make you look at your Bible funny. Right, if that's who you're, con now here's the reality, I get an hour of your week. You can spend hours a day listening to Fox News, Ben Shapiro's podcast, 
Rachel Hollis. You can spend hours being discipled by these people, and if you do that, if you give yourself to their discipleship, it's going to ultimately cause you to look at your Bible funny. You're gonna tend to disagree with the Bible, to push away from it, to start editing and cherry-picking the things that you like. Keep that and discard the stuff that, that is confrontational to your understanding. What you do is you look through the lens of Joe Rogan and critique the Bible rather than looking through the lens of the Bible and critiquing Joe Rogan. I like Joe Rogan. But he's missing it. He's missing the narrow gate. And if you miss the narrow gate, you miss Jesus, and you're on the broad path. Now, those, those are the false prophets and false teachers in the secular realm that we've got to just be aware of. Now, we can, we can applaud some of the things that they say, but by no means are they, they the gospel truth, okay? But there are other false prophets who emerge within the confines of the church, in the religious sphere, the churchy ones. And these tend to be the most dangerous kind of false teachers because they're covert, they're hidden. In fact, that's what Jesus is talking about, the, the wolves in sheepskin. They're the ones that you have to watch out for because it's not just that they, you know, they've got a couple, like we could say, oh, they're just a little misguided. Their heart's in the right place. Well, Jesus says, no, they're ravenous wolves. They're out to destroy whether they know about it or not. They're being used by the enemy in a subversive way. These people might have the look, the charisma, the charm, the eloquence of speech. I obviously don't because I stuttered on eloquence and speech. <laughs> They've got the right lingo. They can throw around gospel language, and they sit in our missional communities, and they spout stuff off, and it's like, wait a minute. What you said doesn't really line up with the rest of your life. What is so they, they have some of the look, and, and there's this, this veneer over them that sort of conceals it, but ultimately, Jesus is saying these people will be revealed for what they are, whether sooner or later. And what these people are are frauds and imposters. They're masters of disguise and deception. I can't say masters of disguise without thinking of Dana Carvey in the turtle turtle suit. <laughs> and like I said, some people like fill this office unknowingly. They, they, they might think they're doing the right thing, they're, they're heralding the right truths, but they're misguided. They take the role of God's messenger, but they're void of God's message. They lie through sharp teeth. They th say things like this in Jeremiah, he says, the false prophets are the ones who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. See, the false prophet is the person who sits in missional community and says, hey, we really don't need to go there with that person. We don't need to confront their sin. We don't need to point them to Jesus. Everything's A-OK -okay as it is. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They call the broad path narrow. They switch the signs. They edit and modify the Bible to make it seem more palatable for the modern mind to scratch what, what is ultimately Peter talks about, just to scratch the itching ears that we, their subjects, tend to have, that we want to hear things that make us feel good. See, the, the economy of false prophets would not be a viable economy if there weren't people who had itching ears to hear what they had to say. 
Now this is even more dangerous when we look at the the false prophets in the sacred, in, in the religious realm, because they are the ones who are telling their followers that this is the way to follow God, right? There, there's the deception in that. They, they, they say, hey, this is the way in, but really they're leading people away from the arms of Jesus, further and further away. Now this is why Jesus calls them ravenous wolves, because Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the way, you don't have the truth, you don't have life. And therefore, Jesus says, these people are ravenous wolves out to kill and destroy, to carry out the execution orders of the enemy, to divert people away from Jesus, the source of life, and away from living the good life. Now, one of my jobs as a pastor is to ward off wolves to protect the flock, There's a reason why the word pastor is linked to shepherd. In the first century, like being a shepherd was a dirty, smelly job, but it was also one that required a lot of courage. You had to stand up. David talks about this. He had to stand up against lions and bears to protect the flock. There's this warrior mindset, this protector mindset that comes with the office of pastor. And my job is to warn you of those who I know who are misleading. So if there's somebody in the church that that is misleading people, and you say, beware. Now, one of the ways that I can do this, because there's not only people locally, but people on a a, uh, large scale, like published authors and pastors and respected people, right, who, who are communicating the way when they're misguided. And so I just want to run through a list of these and like, okay, this is shots fired here. I'm telling you folks, these are people that if you have their books, it's probably best not even to give them to Goodwill, but like burn them. When I go to Barnes and Noble and I see like their books, I always flip them around or hide them. (laughs) Because if some soul is walking through here and it's like, I just want to connect with God and I want to know how to do that, I don't want that person to be communicating to this seeker, okay? That's my, so beware of Joel Osteen, of Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, Rob Bell, Brian McLaren. These are people who have a lot of influence and and you can find their lineage spread out through other teachers and, and really when it comes to the core of it, they have a false gospel. And there are others, many others to be be leery of. I'm not saying just throw the baby out with the bathwater, but there is some things that some people say that we need to look very critically at what they're saying. People like Bill Johnson and Stephen Furtick and Jen Hatmaker and Todd White. I'm not throwing them out baby with the bathwater, but there are things that they have said like in the past that would be very misleading. It could be detrimental to the life of following Jesus as your disciple, as a disciple. But not only do I need to call people out by name, I need to teach you how to spot people like this for yourself. So if one of them shows up in your missional community, you're aware, all right? Because there will be a no-name false teacher that walk, at some point, I've had it multiple times, a no-name false teacher walk into your missional community, say, I don't think it's this way, I think it's that way, and they start, make some sort of a compelling argument where they start pulling people away. And if we let them run crazy, they can ransack a church. 
So Jesus tells us how to spot them here in verses 16 through 20. Look at this. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. He says that again in verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So right there, boom. By their fruit, by their produce, you can tell. But he goes on. He says, you will recognize them by their fruit. Are, you, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot, listen, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus switches the illustration from sheep to wolves, sheep to wolves, to trees and fruit. You can, you can tell them by their fruit. Now, some of this is easy. Like, the, spotting the secular false teachers is easy because thorn bushes don't produce grapes and thistles don't produce figs, right? We shouldn't be going to secular places to find the way of Jesus. That's easy to spot. But it's not just about the, the presence or absence of fruit, but the quality of said fruit. If it's good fruit or bad fruit, you see, a tree can produce fruit and the fruit can be bad, can be spoiled, be rotten. Now that, that's pretty easy to figure out, right? When a piece of fruit's got worms in it and stinky, you just know, I'm gonna steer clear of that. Your stomach will thank you later. It's pretty easy, don't, don't eat that fruit. But there's also a kind of bad fruit that has a good appearance. Now, I've talked about this before. I'm a big peach enthusiast. I love me a good peach. I think peaches could be some of the most finicky fruits out there because there, there's a couple dis distinguishing factors about, about a, piece of, a good piece of pe you know, peach. Right? It's got this, it's gotta be soft but not too soft, okay? You, you gotta kinda, there's a weightiness to it. It's a little bit heavier, right, because it's got juices. Then you know it's gonna be a good one. But I have been duped so many times by a peach that looks good, that feels good, that's got the weightiness that it should. You bite into that, and it's bland, it's bitter, and it's downright disgusting. It's the meanest trick in the book. It has all the right markers, but you get into it, and you realize it's not a good piece of fruit. It looked fine, but tasted like trash. Very deceptive. Jesus is saying the same thing. Look, there's gonna be trees. There's gonna be trees that produce this good-looking fruit in appearance. You bite into it, it's gonna, it's gonna give you a sour stomach. Now, we have to ask this question. What does Jesus mean when he talks about good fruit or when he talks about bad fruit? What, how, how do, what is the standard? What is the criteria of good fruit? Does it mean that a good fruit is somebody, because he's talking about a person here, a tree that produces fruit. Is he talking about uh, somebody who does good things? Is that what good fruit is? No. I mean, th there are some places in Scripture where we, like that would be, uh, good works could be equated to good fruit, but this is not the case here. Jesus is talking about the essence of a person. Right, good fruit and good works aren't the same thing in this conversation, and we can see why next week as we get into the people that Jesus is gonna dismiss and say, Lord, we did all of these good things in your name, and Jesus says, go away, I, I never knew you. 
They had the appearance. They had the lingo. They had the charisma. Jesus says, I didn't know you. You weren't good fruit. To Jesus, good fruit means having, and we've seen this multiple times now. Like, this, this is what a good fruit is. This is what a good person is. This is, this is what a disciple of Jesus is. It's somebody who has a wholehearted orientation towards God. We saw this earlier in, I think it's chapter six, where Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that word perfect isn't talking about a morality, though there are moral implications to this. Jesus is talking about be whole, be whole-minded, wholehearted, wholly set on God. That's a person who, is good, who makes good fruit. That is a good tree. Somebody who has a wholehearted orientation to God. Now, this is what it looks like when you're not. It's like we compartmentalize our lives. We say Jesus can have my Sunday mornings. He can have my Wednesday nights. I can give him 10% of my budget. But here's where I draw the line. He can't talk about my relationships. He can't talk about the way that I treat my wife. He can't talk about the way that I'm failing to serve the poor. He can't talk about, like I draw boundaries for Jesus and say, hey, don't, you don't get to talk about that, you don't get to talk. That's when you've missed this wholehearted orientation towards God. See, for Jesus to be your savior and Lord means that all of it is laid bare. It's like my whole life is given to Jesus. This is the kind of disciple that Jesus is after. Right? That's what a second decision disciple looks like. All of my life, my whole heart given over to God. This is what determines if you're spiritually healthy or spiritually bankrupt. Is your heart aligned to God? Now, when we have this definition of goodness coming down to a wholehearted Godward orientation, this definition clears up a, a lot of questions. Anything that is not this wholehearted orientation toward God is considered bad fruit. Jesus says, don't be, don't be divided in your mind. Don't, don't be flip-flop. Don't get thrown around by other empty doctrines. Wholehearted orientation towards God. That's what good fruit is. Anything less than that is bad fruit. Even the stuff that has the appearance, right? even, the stuff, even the fruit that is doing all the right things, has all the right markers, but if it's not aligned to the will of God, it's bad fruit. Now, here real quickly, here's three signs Here's how you can spot a false prophet. Here's how you spot a false teacher. First of all, is their allegiance to Jesus and the scriptures divided? That, that's really like, that's maybe the main one. Is their allegiance to Jesus divided? Do you see a discontinuity between what the scriptures teach and the message they're communicating and the way that they live their life? If so, that's a red flag. Secondly, do they promote a self-salvation do they promote like th this, this boast in good works sort of mentality where they're not really focused on the glory of God and what God does among his people, but how good man is, right? The glory of man. If they're into that, they're missing it. Three, this lawlessness that as they know, you know, oh yeah, here, here's the Ten Commandments, which we can still stake our lives on. Jesus says, just previously, he said the whole Whole law is summed up in this, love, your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So, so those are still valid, but they still sweep it away, right? 
the lawlessness. Oh, we don't have to do that. And, and so they presume on God's kindness and they live an unrepentant life, right? And in fact, that's one of the ways that you can determine. Bad fruit is equated with unrepentance. This teaching and the disciples that it produces is antithetical to the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus says, the bad tree's gotta be cut down, thrown in the fire. This isn't just a matter of, of, of a tree being a bad tree or producing bad fruit. This is the fact that this tree produces poisonous fruit. It's like Snow White scenario here poisonous fruit and if you you think you're filling up on the good stuff but actually it's killing you from the inside out it's perpetuating your spiritual blindness it's leading you away from Jesus and this is not just problematic on the individual level it will destroy churches and missional communities it'll destroy movements it might seem harmless it's like hey come on let up a little bit here Sam but at the core of this it's hostile towards God It's anti-gospel, anti-Jesus. And it's a form of cosmic rebellion and it perpetuates sin and augments sin in our life. At this point, it's likely, hopefully you've come to this conclusion that, that there's a tendency in our hearts to just drift towards false teaching. Like, it's kind of like a website of a church. You say, here's all the things that we believe, but then when you get into practice, Something's very different, you know, like hopefully we live up to our website. That's always my dream. But, but there's something about a Christian who says, yeah, this is what I subscribe to, but yet my life is so disjointed from this. Right? Well, it's, it's because you've been persuaded by a false teacher or maybe you yourself are a false teacher. Now, every false teacher says that they can point us to the real God. Every false teacher has this, they insist that they can show us the good life, that they have this secret knowledge. Now, let me tell you this, that even true teachers, which I hope I am in that category, Lord willing, you know, God says that the teachers will have a harsher judgment because of all this stuff, because of how you can easily mislead people. You, you can lean into your own comforts and your own sin and sort of protect those, and in doing so, you mislead other people. But even a true teacher, a godly teacher, can only merely point people to God through his word. But here we have a teacher, Jesus, who is himself God, who doesn't just say, here's the way to get to God, but he says, God has come to us in the flesh. You couldn't find me. Your eyes were too blind. You would have missed the gate, but I'm standing right here in front of you. Jesus brings God to us. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And this is why Jesus is the gate that we talk about in the last passage we looked at. This is why we sang this morning, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to get to God unless Jesus himself will come down and say, hey, I'm right here. Look at me. Eyes on me. Eyes on me. Open up your ears to me. See, Jesus is the fount of living water. It's who we crave. That's why our souls are thirsty. They were made to be satisfied in him. It's why Jesus says he's the bread of life. The hunger for righteousness that we feel, Jesus satisfies. He's ultimately what our souls crave. And all of these other teachers, the false teachers, they're giving you like styrofoam to chew on. 
And Jesus says, I got meat and potatoes. Fill up. Fill your souls on me. Now, a marker of a true disciple of Jesus, a true Christian, Jesus says, that my sheep know my voice. Where do we hear, where do we hear the voice of God? Right here, folks. If you don't have a daily discipline of being in the word of God, you are making yourself susceptible to being duped. Now, this doesn't mean that you're gonna read it and instantly know everything. This, this, is, why, this is why I hope you trust me as your pastor. So that you can, in the places where you don't know, you can come and I can guide you to Jesus. I'm not guiding you down my own way. I'm pointing you to Jesus, who knows, who has all the answers that you're looking for. My sheep know my voice, Jesus says. I know them, and they follow me. There's a sequence. They hear my voice. I know them. I love them. I care for them. And because of this, I lead them. They follow me. Now, as we go out as disciples who are making disciples, we have to guard our ears, right? It goes back. Guard your ears, guard your heart, guard your life. We have to do this. In fact, Jesus, when he's sending out his, his 12 disciples for the first time, uh, later on in Matthew's gospel, he says that, that you will be sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out to the deep end. I'm throwing you in. Here's what you need to do. Be as wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. He gives wise as serpents. Now, that, that's, you think, oh, well, Satan was a serpent. Well, yeah, I mean, he was deceitful. He, he was deceiving. He used wisdom in a way to serve his own agenda instead of God's. So here we get a redeem this serpent illustration. Be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. So we take captive every thought, every ideology. We, we, we look through the lens of the gospel and question everything else by the word of God. Now I, I realize we talk about this. There's some people who might feel so, their, their conscience just seems so weak right now. It's like, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm on the right path. I'm not sure if I'm following Jesus the beginning of, of Matthew's gospel, um, John the Baptist says this. This basically sets up the rest of the trajectory of the Christian life. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So to follow Jesus, Martin Luther talked about this, two sides of the same coin. The sum of the Christian life is to repent from your sin, to turn away from self-salvation, and to trust Jesus, to lay hold of the author and perfecter of our faith. So repentance isn't this, this dirty word. Like we should be scared, like we come in and we, and we repent our sins together. Uh, it shouldn't be a dirty word. See, repentance is a gateway that opens us up to the good life. Repentance is realizing, I have veered this week, and listen, you might veer, you, there's a good chance that even as you sit in this pews, mentally, you're veering, right? You, you've turned in sin. The invitation, the good fruit is to turn away from that and turn to Jesus. This is the primary distinctive of a true Christian. Are you repenting of your sin? And this season of Lent is a perfect opportunity for us. Not to repent for the sake of beating ourselves up, right? But, but to see our sin for what it truly is, how grievous it is to God, so that way we can turn to Jesus and lay hold of the good life. And with this comes a life of joy, 
a life of self-sacrifice, a life of zeal, a life of hope. In fact, in the book of Acts, we say, after times of repentance comes times of refreshing. God's grace and mercy actually stinks. Sticks, doesn't stink, it sticks. Before repentance, God's grace is like a ping pong ball off a statue. It doesn't connect. But if you have a repentant heart, it means you have a softened heart. And God's grace will actually stick. And this spills over, right? This good work of repentance and faith spills over into the good works of righteousness, which God has called us to before he even saved us. It's where we make the kingdom of heaven tangible. Like where, where little missional communities are pockets that point to the kingdom of heaven. What, what it's like to live a life near to God, to live this life where my heart is wholly oriented toward God. That our ears remain open to Jesus and closed off to the world. And as we do so, we flourish. Guard your ears, guard your heart, guard your life. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he is in fact the good shepherd. He is the one who goes up against the biggest enemy, the biggest threat of of sin, death, and the grave. And he took that staff and he whopped it upside the head. No longer is there power over over us through sin. No longer does death have a grip on us. Jesus has been victorious. And so in this victory, God, loosen the pangs of sin that in our lives. Loosen the grip of false teaching that we're susceptible to being, you know, pulled into and help us to walk on the narrow path that is hard yet full of life. That our hearts would be fully oriented toward you, God, not withholding anything because you did not withhold a single ounce from us. Teach us to reciprocate love for you that reflects your love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 